Welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. My guest today is Dr. Adia Benton. She's an associate professor of anthropology at Northwestern University and has written extensively about epidemics. I'll let her tell us a little bit more about herself. Hi, thanks, Max. Um, what am I supposed to say about myself? Except, I guess, I, um, yeah, I study epidemics. Um, my first book is about HIV. AIDS in Sierra Leone and the second book, the book that I'm working on and is supposed to be submitted to my editors very soon is about the Ebola outbreak in West Africa in 2014 to 2016. So as you know, there's a, a, another Ebola outbreak in, in Guinea right now. So um, I now have to specify 2014 to 2016 um, before I, you know, as I'm, I'm speaking, so. Right, uh, you know, it's crazy. I, I lived in Atlanta uh, during that Ebola outbreak. And I remember when, you know, folks were being flown into, uh, into Emory University's hospital because of the CDC's right there. It's gotta be crazy being in a pandemic, writing about an epidemic. And uh, I'm assuming that folks, be it your editor and colleagues are probably asked you to, I guess, put your current writing in concert with what's going on right now. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that's really useful about, and I hate to call a pandemic useful, um, but it has, you know, there, I guess that's what historians and anthropologists do, right? They, they talk about social problems as useful to think with. And in this case, uh, writing a book about a, a, an epidemic or actually what I would call a pandemic, since it actually did affect many countries at the time, um, is, is that I have an opportunity to think about the claims that I'm making okay. and who am, I'm accountable to um, for thinking about those kinds of questions. So I know we're probably gonna talk about this anyway, but you know, I talk about security, um, the, the use of something called global health security as an organizing concept or as a political or a set of policies. Um, I've had to talk about whether certain technologies of public health that we're used to like contact tracing, what resonance, resonances they have with other forms of, of, of um, I guess, state, state forms of violence is actually how I like to talk about it or how I'm thinking about talking about it in light of, um, I'd say, other events or contemporary events that, that bring those questions into relief. So in 2014, for example, including the August 2014, where you're talking about the, the woman flying in, the nurse flying into uh, Emory, that was also a time of Black Lives Matter. So, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of people act as if Black Lives Matter began like last year, right. <laughs> but, but the, the movement for Black Lives started a bit earlier and was actually happening at the same time that this West African Ebola outbreak was happening. And there was the, you know, um, the Liberian case is probably the most popular internationally, uh, where the military and the police were actually beating and killed people as they were trying to um, uphold the quarantine, the integrity of the quarantine or the cordon sanitaire around uh, a neighborhood in Monrovia. Um, but this was, again, at the exact same time that the police were beating Black folks and killing them um, in the United States. And so to talk about which Black lives mattered in global debates and for whom and for what purposes, I think took up greater resonance at that time, for, at least for me. Um, because what I found was people were like, why aren't anthropologists 
being included in the conversations about um, what's happening in West Africa, why aren't they guiding policy and or whatever? And I was like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I guess. Um, it, I mean, actually what happened was we were in fact being called because those were Africans. And we obviously have like the cultural keys to unlock that, but I, I'm saying that sarcastically. I don't mm -hmm. actually mean that. <laughs> uh, but no, but but this, but black anthropologists sitting in the United States were saying we've been trying to talk about structural racism, institutional racism in the discipline itself, and how we produce knowledge about whom we produce knowledge, and the conditions and terms under which we produce knowledge all along. And so which ones matter to anthropology became this other sort of, this other layer of, um, I guess, analysis for somebody like me who's situated in, in, in relation to, to both of these arguments, you know, understanding blackness across the Atlantic, mm -hmm. um, understanding knowledge production and all of that stuff in, in those contexts. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, you know, I was living in Philadelphia this, uh, I guess, when the pandemic, God, it's been a year, uh, when the pen, when COVID started. And I remember distinctly the set of schedules were compressed because of the pandemic. And, you know, when it became a rule that you must wear a mask in public, in public spaces and whatnot, I remember seeing uh, this video of a Black man who was getting dragged off of a bus, right, by three police officers. Uh, because he didn't have a mask. So, you know, the rule was put in place that you must not wear a mask in public spaces. And if you're using SEPTA facility or transit authority whatsoever, um, whatsoever. Um, and there came, right, the realization, I mean, maybe not the realization, but it, it was clear like, oh my God, like this is going to be yet another opportunity for folks to summon the agents of the state onto you know, the lives of Black people and sort of like just reinforcing already existing structures around, you know, just state violence writ large, right? And and at the, like this happened and then like the week that follows, it's Amy Cooper who is calling the police on Christian Cooper and Central Park for being in public. And it's also the, the week that follows that we hear that nine out of 10 people getting uh, fined or arrested in New York City for not wearing a mask or for not uh, mean, uh, uh, practicing social distancing appropriately are black. And so, you know, I, I was like, what the hell, man? <laughs> Let, like this crazy, you know, parallelism, right? Like the, the, I'm in Philadelphia, the protests are happening. There, there are curfews. Uh, um, there's police everywhere. I was living in West Philly. I mean, West Philly was tear gas, like God knows what, right? Um, and um, like Gezi, <laughs> right? And so there's a the, the parallel that you're describing is it's really eerie because that's kind of how Philly felt, right? Because of the protest um, uh, in late May and June, but also because of how mask wearing and social distancing and whatnot were being enforced in Philly and elsewhere. And, you know, it really, I mean, you've been talking about this a lot on social media about how public, uh, public health practices, right, are sort of mirrored in police practices or are very similar to police practices. And, and it's made me wonder or think about, well, what does that mean, right, for effective public health 
uh, uh, practice and for public health that engages communities responsibly? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I was thinking as you were talking about the person being pulled off the bus, you know, I'm also, I was an avid, avid consumer of CTA, the Chicago Transit Authority. So, um, and actually a lot of my social media was chronicling the ride, the long ride that I had from Southside to uh, Evanston. Um, but what I was thinking is now, if you're really thinking about public health and, and the questions of if you, if you divorce it from say enforceability or state forms of violence, the natural public, or, if, or to put it another way, if care was at the center of public health rather than enforcement, punishment, and, and whatever, whatever kinds of violence that you saw, um, what if there had been masks? <laughs> like what, right. you know, if, if this was real, if this was really about, if this was really about care, a mask would have been available for that person. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, we, I mean, I, I suppose he could have refused it, but he also could have probably, there, there are other things that I, I assume could have happened under those circumstances. We don't know why he was going to where he was going. Um, but, but anyway, there, I think at the way that I've been thinking about the relationship is that I mean, I guess there are different ways to try to think about or to compare, um, I guess it's, a, it's an important exercise to compare and think about the relationships between the two. So I would say in the long, long history of public health, you know, most people start with like 13th, 14th century quarantine. You don't have to do that. <laughs> but but th those, are, those were primarily um, centered on relations of trade. So mm -hmm. how do you keep thing, how do you keep trade and commerce moving? How do you protect the city while also making sure that or the or the ports while also making sure that those those um, that objects move safely um, or circulate freely mm -hmm. in, in, in markets? It is, is essentially like the sort of grand scheme thing. But other kind other forms of 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 I guess state boundary making and governance accompanies public health. So even as public health was imagined, as it imagined would, I guess, co-evolved with different understandings of disease. So um, imagine, you know, at these times, the idea, like different ideas about how things, how diseases spread, shaped how these technologies, how these apparatuses developed, right? At that time, they didn't know that something was carrying. They're like, "Oh, the air is bad," or "Oh, it's it's moving on objects." So they had to, they, objects were isolated, uh -huh. um, spaces were gassed, and and so on. I'm just going like I basically just collapsed the 13th through 19th centuries. Don't mind me. Um, but as as different sort of environmental and social ideas about um, health emerged in terms of causation and causality, those also shaped. Um, those also shaped public health. But one thing that I have noticed is looking over those centuries is that other, the, 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 the intrusion or the movements of the other, the outsider is subject to scrutiny um, mm -hmm. in those relations of trade. And as relations of trade sort of fade into the background or at least are only a part of the story, those movements also shape like how those movements of others has continues to shape 
um, how public health is exercised or how certain technologies of public health are exercised. And so when I was thinking, so, so I've been trying to think those things alongside each other, where are they just simply sort of analogs or analogous? When are they sort of metaphorical and when are they literal? Uh-huh. So a guy being pulled off the bus by police, that's a literal like police enforcement of the mask wearing. Um, that is Lori Lightfoot um, pulling up, <laughs> that is Lori Lightfoot pulling up all the, all the bridges over, all, over the river so that people can't, people are stuck in the city during protests, telling us well after the curfew happens and arresting people. Yep. Um, and subject to, you know, and, and, but not sending us a text message to tell us about like resources that we can have for COVID, right? You have to opt into those. You don't have to opt into the, we're closing down the city because you guys are protesting and we want to trap you there. Um, we, it, it is, um, so, and the literalization is also, um, and actually Therka Sangaramurthy, we were talking about this because she used to work for the CDC at uh, as within STIs and sexually transmitted infections. And we were actually texting back and forth about how um, a lot of their contact tracing and rapid ethnographic uh, assessments were, s- sex workers were skeptical uh-huh. um, about participating in any kind of research that was supposed to address questions of like keeping people safe because they were worried about collusion with the police. Right. How do you talk about um, women who are undocumented sex workers? Mm -hmm. So the fear of law enforcement and the relationship between state health departments and law enforcement um, of various kinds shape the ability of of public health departments everywhere to be able to do their work. Mm -hmm. Um, And their collusion with, complicity with, collaborations with those groups endanger the possibility of care, right? People whose whose daily existence is already subject to police scrutiny, scrutiny Mm -hmm. by agents of the state. And so that that collusion, that complicity is there. And then there's a sort of like weird, I would say elective affinity between um, sort of detective work Right, we know the Epidemic Intelligence Service calls them, they all call themselves disease detectives. I, I don't yeah. know if they're like Dick Tracy detectives or if they're police detectives. Sherlock Holmes. But, <laughs> <laughs> right, are you Sherlock Holmes? Are you anti-man? Are you anti-the man? Or are you, or are you with, with the keen insight of observation? Um, or are you something else? And, and my sense is that when you're organized, when you're organized by a state agency, you are the police kind. Um, mm-hmm. So this disease detectives, but also the surveillance work um, that's done at other levels. So the example that I try to use because I work internationally and think about racial hierarchies or global hierarchies that are racialized. I, I always, I ask the question or I think about the fact that this EIS um, training program, I've known quite a few epi- um, disease detectives, I'll just call them that. I know quite a few of them and um, you know, they're all doctorate level, doctorate level people, right? They're all MDs, PhDs, DBMs, whatever. Um, and they get a couple, you know, some months of investigative training, you know, and then are sent out. Um, and then there's the FETP 
the, the sort of field epidemiology training program, which is an offshoot of EIS, but it's only for the, the internationals. It's only, it's only, um, it's a shorter program and you don't have to have the same credentials. I think in some countries they'll say, oh, you have to be a doctor or you have to, you know, but um, certainly in Sierra Leone, that's not the case because there probably aren't enough doctors to put through the, the, the thing. And so that hierarchy exists, but they also aren't seen necessarily as the analysts, right? They're seen as the people who do that sort of day-to-day -day patrol work, um, the beat cop, they're beat cops essentially in this grand sort of health policing model. Uh -huh. So it's, it's like how I've been kind of trying to sort out some of these things. Um, yeah, I mean, there's another part of that story in my book that I, <laughs> I don't know if I want to go into it, but it, it, it involves the Atlanta child murders of 70, from 79 to 81 um, and the e, and EIS involvement in that investigation of that case. I don't think I've heard of that. Um, really? No. Nope. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this, you made a point earlier about trade that made me think uh, about, you know, this idea of passports, right? Um, and I read this article that was basically saying, right, the pandemic will only further impoverish, um, you know, folks from low and middle income countries because people haven't been able to travel as much to, I don't know, go buy merchandise or to come sell or to travel for studies, what have you, right? The things that travel has allowed people like me to like come to the United States and study. Um, and now we're, we're in the middle of a conversation about vaccine passports, um, which it hasn't actually been clear to me whether people mean like passports for international travel as opposed to just like a yellow card for starting school um, or a, a you know passport for entering a concert arena or whatever, right? But be that as it may, um, the global north has like hogged, I don't know, 90 something percent of all vaccine shares available. I've been thinking, well, I, I for sure hope that if vaccine passports are supposed to be about international travel, that it wouldn't be in, in the way that will basically keep people from low and middle income countries um, out of the US and, and France and the UK and what have you. Uh, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on just the general conversation. Yeah, on the COVID yellow cards. We don't, so first of all, we don't even know what, I think you're right. Like we don't know what people are really talking about. Yeah. And there's all this stuff going on, at, you know, at the White House. <laughs> like, I still don't even know. Maybe I should actually do a little bit more reading. But, you know, I think I'm trying to figure out what, I guess, legitimacy is being achieved by putting the word passport on it. Right. right. Because passports are a specific kind of document. They are supposed to be evidence of your either your citizen, your citizenship. Mm -hmm. And whatever rights accrue to that citizenship as you cross national borders. And those are obviously inequitable ones for lots of different reasons. And those inequities are reproduced in, very, in various ways, which is like reciprocity in relation to um, who can go where, under what circumstances, for what costs, and right. so on. And like, you know, you know, it's sort of interesting what I'm also seeing is, and I don't like to use privilege all the time as a descriptor of things, but what I am seeing in the sort of response to this thing that hasn't yet been defined 
is one that smacks of privilege. It's like, imagine if you had to show your papers and it's like, you know, actually, I don't have to imagine because like literally (laughs) that that is the reality for lots of people. Mm -hmm. Imagination is actually failing you here. Um, And, you know, so I'm getting that like, um, imagine if, um, which I find ridiculous, but also revealing that it's, it's much easier for people with children to understand is school is, you know, a kind of universal, mostly, I guess, I guess it's a universal institution to which people, that to which people belong, mm-hmm. um, at least at, at early ages. And so, and those childhood, those childhood vaccines are kind of your passport, so to speak, right. into those institutions. Um, but they're, they're easier to manage because they're universal. Right. Mm-hmm. And those and that access is technically universal. Every child is required to have one and every child can actually get one. Every child can get a vaccine. Right. Uh, for measles, you know, they can get those vaccines. We don't have that same equity. We don't have the same universality. With COVID. With COVID. It's new. We, we don't. I mean, I was like, we're building up infrastructure, digital infrastructure, whatever kind of infrastructure, administrative in- infrastructure around an emergency use vaccination, something that is not even fully approved. approved. It's not right. even fully approved. And you're telling me this makes sense. How? And if it's not, in fact, a passport, if it is not about something that is accruing to citizenship, as all of these things are accruing, and it's just about enabling you to consume because really that's what people are talking the, re- the, the reason private companies are super invested in this and the reason that's for, for whatever reason is they're trying to figure out how to get people back into their place right. to buy things. <laughs> yeah. Right. They want, they want to, to, to manage access and, and their access to markets and people's access to goods. You know, that's, that's the thing. It's like, if this is what that's about and that's a different thing, but if it's about creating a system through which people will have universal access, that's a different story. But I, I do think it's bizarre that, you know, I mean, I even have my own, I just had my second vaccine yesterday, two days ago. And I, I'm like, I have a special card for this. Yes. And they were like, paper. are you going to laminate it? And I'm like, I have a yellow card. In fact, I wish I could just put it on my yellow card so I don't have to deal with this anymore. Yeah, um, it's funny. Anyway. I was sore when I got mine, right? Don't lose it. I was like, what y'all going to do with it? Or like, what is this going to become? Is this, I, I mean, I jokingly asked the nurse, is this going to be my freedom paper? And... <laughs> She said, well, I don't know, but they've just told us to tell people to make sure they keep track of these. And I was like, okay, I guess. This would not be a problem too if we if we had like a national, some kind of- A, a national health record, like Frank? Right, a national, health, <laughs> a national health record that would actually allow this to happen, right? Right. You know, the thing is, again, we're creating systems barely that we're just sort of adding on to already fragmented systems of managing information and that, that bothers me. And this is actually why I'm going to put in a plug for STS and I'm putting a plug for Anthro of STS, which is, this is like a kind of question that, that we would be, that we're interested in. You know, this administrative, bureaucratic, like the boring stuff has a life. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a political life, it has a social life, and it is very much a part. It's, it's braided into our lives in ways that we can't even fully acknowledge. Like the reason people are so pissed off about this is because they know it's gonna have, it's it's going to change something about what they are entitled to. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, and that, and that's the, and, and I think that's the, you know, that's the problem. And so like thinking about this globally, I think is one question. I think thinking about this in the everyday, particularly in places that don't have efficient good systems in the first place and, and introducing something like this, you know, it, it seems, seems bizarre, it's bizarre. Mm-hmm. Um, there will be more outbreaks. There will be other diseases. What are we gonna do about it? You know, building something for COVID is, is very short-sighted, is very limited. Um, you know, we kind of have this sort of national, these national registers with respect to certain communicable diseases, right? We have this like list of reportable infections, blah, blah, blah. But what do they mean? There's a lot that we still have that we don't do with COVID uh-huh. that, would, that would allow us to link it up there. Um, but that also needs to be embedded in a bigger system. Uh-huh. And we're not, we don't have it. And it doesn't sound like that there are any efforts to kind of do, to do that. Um, on a large scale. And I think that's, that's a, a problem. So who knows what a passport is? It's probably not a passport at all. Um, it's, prob- it's probably just another like piece of red tape to kind of restrict our access to change, to, to, to uh, determine entitlements and to, to reproduce inequality. So this brings us to the next question, right? The role of global security, um, right? It's this kind of like a I don't know if it's burgeoning or whether it's been like a long-standing field, but like during COVID, we've sort of seen these personalities, right, rise to the occasion on the national stage. I'm a global security expert, uh, and uh, like especially around infectious diseases. Like, uh, I know you have critiques of this. I want to hear them. I'm curious what your thoughts are on the role, uh, good or bad, right, of how we place global security and in, in I don't know how society is meant to function. <laughs> yeah, so it's, you know, it's actually, I won't call it old, but mm-hmm. it, it's had, it, it has a, a fairly long history in the sense that it, it's definitely a Cold War, Cold War era concept, like mm-hmm. linking up national security and, and, and national and security and health. Mm-hmm. Uh, and health yeah and so you know some people point to say like Langmuir who was the CDC director in the 50s I think <laughs> I'm like was he the director or was he just that no I think he might have just been a head of epi but whatever the point is that in, in this idea of intelligence mm-hmm. comes out of these sort of cold war concerns some linked to biological weapons and chemical weapons mm-hmm. and the idea was you know from his war experience was that we need to be really actively preparing for surveilling these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, anthropologists like Lyle Fernley and others have written about this. But the, and actually Andy Lakoff was another person. Um, and so that, that's, sort, that's sort of the older history, but, but what I, uh, Nick King, who, who's a historian of science sort of talks about these things in, in a couple of phases. Um, and I think, um, I, I guess I would I would say one of those phases is the eight, I think it's eighty nine or ninety that report that was put out by Lederberg. It, it's emerging inf- it's about emerging infections. Mm-hmm. Basically, that sort of started the biosecurity frame. Like let like can we talk? Can we come up with a list of infectious diseases that can be weaponized? That could be that you know that people might use against us or that might mm-hmm. pose a threat to national security. Like, can we think about this? Can we think about this in, in a globalizing era? Like, like we weren't global already, right? 
Uh, because the idea is that a lot of this is coming from somewhere else, right? These right. are not infections. They're emerging. And, you know, I think Paul Farmer did a really good job of saying emerging from what, from where, like some of these things never left for, for <laughs> some of us, for some of us who work on tuberculosis or, you know, or malaria or whatever, these things never emerge. They never mm-hmm. left. Um, so um, the story I like to tell about that is when I was in public health school in the late nineties, is, you know, when I was, I had this, to look for a job, I noticed that all of my, like, you know, my friends who, who are a little bit more uh, government minded were getting jobs in Colorado Springs on biosecurity projects, because that was sort of the thing, right? Anthrax, there was an anthrax attack in, mm-hmm. in, in Washington, um, there was 9-11. So all of these things were um, coming up as possible, whatever. And the first season of the Jack Ryan thing on Amazon, terrible series was, it was about <laughs> ISIS. I think it was about ISIS, but then they were also like using Ebola. Like they, they kind of got confused with their plot, but there was a point at which Ebola became the weapon, the weapon of choice. Mm-hmm. Still don't know how that works. So the point, <laughs> and um, so I guess the way that I look at this is at global health security, at all of these sort of points in time became kind of resurfaced as a, see, we told you we should be focusing on security. See, we should, and, and let's not think of security as um, simply military or security or security in the sort of violent sense. Let's think of security as safety. Um, that's how, the, that's sort of how the public health folks tried to soften it. We talk mm-hmm. about food security. We talk about this security. This is this that kind of security. It's not it's not nasty war security, bomb mm-hmm. security. It's 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 the softer side of security. It's it's making sure people are safe and cozy and ho- at home, free from disease right. that make you bleed out of your eyeballs. So <laughs> and so and so there has been over the past, I'd say 10, 15 years or so, something called a global health security agenda. Mm-hmm. that is like codified this is these are the principles these are the approaches that we think we should be taking and so on and one thing that came out of the ebola outbreak in west africa in 2014 i would say um is a lot of people signed on to that because they thought well this is going to help us be better prepared but when you look at it so i'll put it this way like the early days of, of ebola in in west africa was focused on keeping it from leaving, mm-hmm. keeping it in its place, not necessarily treating people to With. improve survivorship. Mm-hmm. Care was not at the center of the model. Isolation, containment, palliation, right. maybe. Palliation, maybe. That's trace, trace isolate. isolate. That's what it was, right? Right. Treat was not in there. Or palliate. It wasn't, was and and to think about it. Right, they were they were definitely like we're trying to keep hospitalizations low. Is what mm-hmm. was actually happening, and so you know, and it was really interesting. There were a lot of nurses at the time who were on Twitter or whatever saying, "Okay, you're sick with COVID. Here, are, you know, you want to keep the fever. You want to treat. You know, they they were doing that work. Mm-hmm. That wasn't actually like a part of that national strategy." And so if you look at the global health security agenda and you're, if you're looking for care, you don't find it. You find something called medical countermeasures. Mm-hmm. Medical countermeasure is not healthcare. It's not, it's not treatment. 
medical countermeasures is what can we get into your body to keep you from spreading that shit? the rest of us right yes right. how do we keep you how do we keep it it's it, it, it's it's a, a medical countermeasure sounds pretty tactical it sounds like army strategy right i do think that there is this um masculinist energy around the health security agenda even when there's a a a, a an attempt to soften the and, right, exactly. Like I get that a lot, actually, when I push back against health security and say, who, who security, mm-hmm. um, fr- what are they being secured from? Um, who is doing the securing? <laughs> All of that stuff. Care, right, right, right. Uh, yeah, it makes, you know, COVID especially, we've been having this conversation about the value of care work or like they're off or how we don't really, we haven't as much, right? Brought care work uh, to the fore of like how much, like how much that's what keeps keeps us together, literally, right? Like save, like palliating people who have COVID because we don't quite have treatment and caring for children who are going to school at home via Zoom uh, to caring for elders who, I mean, so much, right? Of sustaining, everything is around care work but it, so it's really interesting then that something that receives a lot of funds uh, from a public health perspective does not include care work um, I mean and I, that's what that's been my I think skepticism about the vaccine raw the raw raw whatever around vaccines is like you guys are basically sitting around waiting for something like this so you didn't have to do care Magic bullet, yes. Right. You were like, you were just like, I mean, I said you were willing to let people, like, you were actually like okay with letting people die until you know you could get something that you could just you know consume and not deal with. And and the fact of the matter is, is we're still working with uh, a like a I guess a commodity essentially. Vaccine is a commodity um, that is not. Again, we don't know. We don't know what the long term effects are going to be. And I don't mean like what the, like how people, what it does to people's bodies um, beyond the fact is we, because it hasn't been very long, we don't know how long immunity is going to last. Like mm-hmm. we don't, we don't know how many people, we don't know how it's going to shape transmission dynamics. We, we only have sort of preliminary insights right. into that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, who knows, will we be getting boosters in a year? Or... Study. I just saw some people are signing up for the, the third the booster study right now yeah i mean which they're gonna they're gonna have they're gonna have to do and so we're, we're like constantly in this you know this is not the end we right. were people let up you know and they, again but it felt like and even trump's words were very much about well we got this warp speed thing going on it was almost like the movies right like mm-hmm. let's just we'll come up with a secret serum and everything will will go back to normal um, and everyone's sort of praying and, and hinging all of their um, their future plans on on that going back to normal, so right? Am I, so, but, al- but also on the vaccine, doing that. Mm-hmm. Not all of the other no, stuff. Not all the care. Us. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. I um, mean, care. I mean, all of the things that we needed to be doing anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did have one tiny question left. I'm curious. Right in the middle of this current Ebola outbreak in Guinea uh, and COVID, right? Happening all at the same time. Uh, what does that mean in terms of global, you know, global health inequities? 
um, and thinking about how much of, you know, like the OMS resources are probably strained um, and, you know, on the heels of the U.S. initially leaving the OMS. And I guess we're going back. Or sorry, OMS. WHO. <laughs> I was going to say, I know you mean WHO, but not everyone's going to know that you mean WHO. Yeah, oops, yeah sorry. There are right, those acronyms that I learned in one language first. I sometimes forget. Yes, WHO. <laughs> well, luckily, I knew what you were talking about. Uh, <laughs> so the... Um, yeah. there's so much i mean i i don't even know if i can answer because i mean who is an advisory organization it's sort of the thing that ever, all of these organizations ended up doing when mm -hmm. they had to deal with um you know different different sovereign nations right so even the cdc operates under a similar model right the states mm -hmm. are kind of sovereign and then the cdc only assists when necessary mm -hmm. right um and and even then it it feels like the relationship is about um, the the state's perceived um, or not necessarily real expertise, but perceived mm -hmm. um, or or ability to do that job. With um, you know, it's funny. I actually don't know nearly as much about what Guinea is dealing with with COVID and and, and Ebola at the same time, but I do actually know what Sierra Leone is doing. Mm -hmm. which is, is fascinating because I think to some extent that Ebola experience set people up for certain kinds of things. Like people are not as wary or skeptical of going, okay, schools might need to be closed down for radio lessons or, mm -hmm. it, which isn't to say that that's the best thing, but I think the, the familiarity with national restrictions on travel with, um, well, that's basically like the, the main thing. Um, wearing masks is not was not normal under Ebola, but it's something that people are expected to do. And when you, you look at sort of official meetings, everyone's sort of spaced in wearing their masks. Mm -hmm. But there are actual protocols, you know, like how long, what kind of testing you need to land if you're coming. You can't come into the country via water or, or land. There's a, I mean, and, and some of these things are being managed um, through the same kinds of mechanisms that, it, that were built up during Ebola. So, mm -hmm. they, so in some ways they've sort of scaled. Uh, Their pre-existing infrastructure. Yeah, yeah, it's basically, it, it's, but again, that's easier to do in a country that is, has long been trying to right. kind of standardize and rationalize health system, mm -hmm. right? It's what you, it's kind of what you have to do when you don't have any money <laughs> it's like you right. you go you go oh well let's see i have 16 17 districts and we have to at least have a, a, a hospital in each one so i i you know you, you make a great point right like that there being a public like there there being a lack of resources probably um forces certain countries to um have to invest more in prevention because um, you can't handle the fallout when you didn't prevent. I mean, that should be that should be the case. Um, but yeah, I would say you're right. Like a, the public health system works um, in the sense that you're providing for a largely poor population, right? So it's not going to be about generating profit. Mm -hmm. um, and and when it is, those are you know those are peripheral to those 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 entities are peripheral to the sort of greater system right mm -hmm. 
And so um, that's sort of, I mean, I guess that's how, how I'm seeing it. It's, um, they can do, they can do a lot of preventive work. Yeah. So yeah, you're talking about it's, it's more likely to, you're more likely to see immunizations and stuff that focuses on small children and getting them to survive past five um, around uh, obstetrics and gynecological care because they're trying to sort of ensure um, better or less maternal mortality. Um, but, you know, there is a gap in, in care often um, because of those uh, limited, I think, siloed fo foci. Um, so, you know, I, it's, a, it's a kind of morbid joke, but I say nobody cares about you unless you're under five, able to give birth or suffering from a specific infectious disease. Um, and so, you know, and, and, and that's, that's the, the product of, I think, a system, a sort of global system, which, focus, which focuses on certain metrics, mm -hmm. lowering some of those metrics as an indicator of progress, as an indicator of development, and focusing on cost effectiveness, right? So mm -hmm. what does it mean if, if you do, if you focus on these things when you are, when you have these scarce resources, if you focus on these things, these things offer you the greatest return. So to some extent, the same kinds of governing logics, those logics of, I guess, profit making mm -hmm. um, exist, but they, they, they exist in a different way or they have a different kind of expression, right, which is they're... to say, if you focus on these groups, yeah, this is the return that you get nationally. Mm -hmm. This is the return on your, the return on your investment is longer life, more life, all of the, you know, uh, amongst these groups that, that seem to be predisposed to death, mm -hmm. predisposed to early death, I should say. Right. And so there's like a, a way that they, these, these are unacceptable deaths or there's a threshold of unacceptable death for this particular group of people due to these particular conditions um, or whatever. And so that's sort of like the way that that plays out in, in these kinds of systems. Um, that said though, is again, it does require building a kind of standardized infrastructure, you know, so, so they, so one can propose a national health system information system. Mm -hmm. One can propose um, doing a national lockdown that, that is built up around the district system. One can do all of these things. I think it would be a very different situation in Nigeria, which has that same federal state, whatever. And you did see that in fact, like that Lagos state had a much better Ebola response than other places might have had, or they would handle certain things better because they had a much more invested governor, um, a better public health system that was better staffed, and so on. That looked very different from, say, Akano, Kaduna, or Inugu. For mm -hmm. you know, so it's just, um, yeah, I'd say it's it's about it, it's why Sierra Leone may be able to bypass a bad COVID outbreak, who knows? It's actually really hard to get to Sierra Leone. You know, I was telling people it takes me two days and it takes me two days because I have to go to Europe and, <laughs> and because I have to get on a boat or a plane or whatever to get from the airport to the mainland. Um, so when COVID was coming to Sierra Leone, it was probably coming from Paris or, or Brussels or somebody in the States, mm -hmm. you know, and it's usually somebody who traveled. Right, yeah. 
Well, Dr. Benton, I've, I, you know, I've learned a great deal. I don't get to talk to anthropologists uh, often, but I'm always just fascinated, right, with the anthro and SCS approach to um, analyzing, you know, these issues that are so pressing. Uh, it's been a delight. I look forward to um, seeing the tail end of you writing your book and uh, hopefully reading it. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for the invitation. It was fun. Thanks everyone for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script.